From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is I here in Studio A in the Podcast Village studios where I am joined by, he is the former Assistant Secretary for Commerce for International Trade. He is the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Joining us from an undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such great books, including his most recent one, American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Richard Bino. Hello, Richard. Hi, Justin. And, of course, we've got uh, Rob the Engineer behind the glass keeping us honest, and we've got Eric, the producer, who's joining us after... Not being here last week. We missed you, Eric. We really did. You can't say anything. You don't have a mic, but that's okay. We can wave. Anyway, uh, lots to get to on this episode of Backroom Politics. The, the, the one thing that we do want to talk about is uh, we obviously record this on a Tuesday. That being said, we have had major developments happening inside uh, the, the tensions rising in the Middle East. In case you did not see it, over the weekend, a uh, Saudi Aramco uh, facility, the largest oil-producing facility in the region owned by Saudi Aramco, uh, was attacked by what appears to be, or what it first thought to be U- UAVs. There's now conflicting uh, intelligence saying that it might have been cruise missiles. However, it was at first reported that it could have been an attack based by Yemeni rebels that are uh, backed by Iran and against the pro-Saudi Yemeni government. It has uh, quickly escalated into a war of words between uh, between uh, the Saudi Arabian Kingdom, between he, the White House here in Washington and the Iranian capital in Tehran. The Yemeni government's obviously been very quiet about this. Uh, either being told by the Saudi government as we got this, or they uh, don't want to get involved in a largely escalating conflict inside the Saudi Peninsula. The the there's economic impacts. There is uh, there's potential uh, impacts as far as foreign policy goes. This is a very very dangerous situation, Alan Moore, that we're dealing with here. Uh, I mean, on the on the on the on just the facade of this, this takes an already fired up powder keg in the Saudi Peninsula and just escalates it exponentially. Is that pretty accurate? It, it, this is a big deal, um, and and one has to assume that our government knows pretty much where the where the uh, where the the drones or the cruise missiles or both came from, um, they haven't said that. They hinted at it, that it looks like Iran. The Houthis, the the Houthis originally in in Yemen, the Yemenis Houthis who were backed by Iran. These, these are the rebels. Yes, they 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 said we did this. We did this with ten drones. Well. The the problem with that is that there's a couple of things. One, apparently they do have and even manufacture some drones 
that that could carry 40-pound bombs uh, a few hundred miles. That piece of information, which has emerged, is startling in its own right. The problem, though, with the explanation that that the the Houthi rebels claimed that they did this is it was closer to 20 strikes. There were precision strikes on large containers, uh, lar- large storage uh, facilities of oil that were all hit at about the same place uh, in, in, in their circumference, suggesting a much more accurate even than a, than a, than right. a small drone, a lot more like a cruise missile, which would have to mean Iran. But this is this is a facility that literally produces 5.7 uh, million barrels a day yep. in production. That is about give or take five to six percent of the total world's output. That's correct, and it's about commercial. it's about half of the Saudi output. Um, and it's uh, we 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 take some of the Saudi output. Um, and uh, most of the Saudi output goes to Asian countries, to China, to India, to Japan, um, to South Korea, and then uh, Europe. Uh, several countries in Europe get 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 a chunk. We do take about twenty billion dollars worth a year of. Uh, we're about the third or about the fourth largest consumer of Saudi oil, notwithstanding the fact that we now produce more in total than the Saudis do, we consume so much oil, we need to get it from uh, a host of places, including right. Canada and Mexico. Right. But, but, the, but the real question here is, so let's assume that, that the Iranians, in, in some way or the other, were directly involved in this. And I say the Iranians because well, they have different Different right. groups, different well, interests. Hold, hold on to that thought for a second, Rich. I mean, uh, uh, Alan, because I, I want to go to Rich real quick, though, and, and go, you know, Rich, when when we look at the output that is put out by Saudi Aramco and by the Saudi, we we don't have that dependence, as Alan pointed out, on the on the foreign oil, particularly on the Saudi oil, uh, like we did before. It, does this give at least? the White House and out to say, look, you know, this is not our fight. We can back off a little bit. I made a promise that we're not going to escalate any more wars, let alone needless wars. Or does this paint us, in fact, into a corner because of the close relationship between the Saudis and the White House? Yeah, I think the answer is that it does paint us into a corner. It's interesting, specifically with Donald Trump, when he ran in 2015, 2016, he was talking about how we were in all these forever wars and how much money we were spending, the trillions of dollars that should have been spent at home on infrastructure. But he always made kind of a caveat specifically for Iran. Um, when it comes to Iran, it was different than Iraq. It was different than Afghanistan. That was the one country he really kind of had bellicose rhetoric toward. Um, he would say, he said, for example, about how awful what he would say the Barack Obama's deal um, with the deal, deal with deal with Iran, where they got rid of the sanctions, where, where the U.S. relieved the sanctions in return. Iran said that they would um, that they that they would get rid of their nuclear facility. So that that deal, he said he he said he would tear up the deal. And when he came to the president, when he came when he became president, he did at least on the U.S. side. There were still some European allies that had signed on it as well. But it's it's interesting because when he talks about Saudi Arabia specifically, um, he has this he has a certain way of way of essentially it's almost like 
Prince, Prince, it's almost like the Prince of Saudi Arabia is, you know, somehow above Vladimir Putin for him. He views him as he views him. He's kind of awestruck by him. He really views him in a sort of reverential way. And when his rhetoric, when he was talking, um, you know, he's basically said that we that the U.S. will support Saudi Arabia. I mean, remember, this is a country that if you go back to the first Gulf War back in 1991. That was in part because the U.S. was afraid that Saddam Hussein, after invading Kuwait, would then go into a Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, President Trump's rhetoric has not really changed. I mean, he said, he said kind of, you know, um, he, he, said, he said generically something right. to the effect of, you know, we don't want war with anyone. But his rhetoric with Iran right. is so much different than every other country. It's, I mean, there's really, there's really right. is a specific caveat for that country. Got it. Alan Moore, along that same line, uh, has the as Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, has he painted us into a corner? Well, I don't know that, that that he has. We have we have we have allowed him, presumably him the individual, to have his way in a variety of issues. It's just, it was just a year ago that that the journalist, uh, Mr. Khashoggi, was was taken into the Turkish embassy, the the, the Saudi embassy in Turkey, and murdered, uh, and removed, and then lied about. Um, and all of our intelligence uh, uh, agencies believe that that uh, this was uh, something that that uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman knew about and likely directed and ordered. Um, we have allowed him to not take responsibility for that. I'm not in the intelligence community, but everybody who is sort of believes that. Having said that, they're an important ally of ours. So sometimes your your allies do things that you really despise and your right. and your hands are a bit tied, but that doesn't mean you defend them as this president often uh, is inclined to do. Um, but but the, the problem with Iran here is what I started to say before, it could have been government directed. There's there's some theories that suggest that the that the the uh, that the Iranian Republican Guard may have done this on its own. The, that's a con, that's conceivable. We we don't yeah, but traditionally, we, we may know where that they came from, uh, from Iran, uh, or or from from the north rather than from the south in in Yemen, um, but but we're not sure who did it. And then the question is, well, how would we want to respond? Because the the, well, the the prevailing theory about why the Iranians did this is that the U.S. sanctions against Iran. Are crippling. We're not allowing them to sell oil. We're disrupting their their ability to sell oil. Uh, that is that is uh, part of our sanctions against them. That and 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 blockades of shipping stuff to them. Um, and and I and and the the this working theory is that that those sanctions hurt. They're very painful. And they're saying, okay, if you're going to disrupt us. And our ability to survive and sell oil, we're going to disrupt you, America, and your allies, Saudi me, Arabia, right, which is an go back, easy, big, fat right, target. Let me go back to, to one of the points that you made, going back to the point that the Iranian Republican Guard acted on its own. I mean, traditionally, I mean, the, Ira the Iranian public, Republican Guard, it, in fact, is part of the Iranian military. It's their specialized 
forces, if you will, they've never acted that blatantly without some sort of direction coming from the Ayatollah. Is well, that accurate? Well, so far as we know, but re- but remember, we've also got the president of Iran who has some authority, and there's was conversations about the the president, our president Trump, possibly meeting with with uh, President, president Rouhani, um, which was a very controversial matter. That kind of a very po- very controversial matter, both in the U.S. And in Iran, and the theory about the the Republican Guard is that they may have said, "We're not going to let that happen. We're going to stir things is up." It, over is here. this possibly the Republican Guard flexing its muscles? Well, that's the theory. To- I, I I tend to think that it's more likely that the Iranian that the Iranian governments d- decided that because the sanctions were so painful that they wanted to show their ability to disrupt the world's right. economy and and if and if the US and or Saudi Arabia and if it was the Saudis it would have to be done with our knowledge and presumably shared information and US armaments that have been sold to the Saudis decided to strike back at Iranian oil production right. facilities right. then you're 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 going to invite a tit for tat that will likely sh- shut down the remaining half of Saudi Arabian production even as they're bringing the the damaged production back online. Right. Uh joining us better late than never, Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello Daniel. Hello Justin. Always love having you in the studio. I appreciate it. Uh talk to me about the the awkward position of the president having to really I, I would I would venture to say more than any time he's had in the past at least two years had to really rely on the intelligence community in getting him the skinny on what exactly is happening regarding the situation in Saudi and the you mean the intelligence community that gets misquoted on their testimony before Congress when it's on camera that it's actually what they said or the intelligence community that had it wrong for the Iraq war the intelligence community that had it wrong with apparently uh, Putin and Russia's influence in the last election, or the intelligence community that had wrong. Uh, uh, which, yes. Which which yes. part of this? Yes. Is, uh, but, but I mean, um, this. I mean, th- this is an instance where the White House, in particular, the president, is going to have to rely on the intelligence community to really get the skinny. And the scary part about this is, and we'll talk about this in another segment, but it kind of ties in. He's doing this without a national security advisor, with the departure of of uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton. Well, it all ties in. And the the this is actual three-dimensional chess, which I think this president is incapable of even imagining, or I, I'm going to guess he's not even certain what the phrase means. Um, in this case, the United States, we have, thanks to the, the fracking oil, without any judgments there, um, we are essentially... Energy oil, independent. Energy independent. Now, that's not the way oil markets work uh, now, especially with the lifting of the prohibition of right. the U.S. selling oil on the open market. Um, however, what is worth noting is, as Alan pointed out, our allies are far more dependent on Middle Eastern oil now. And so the real question is, why are we picking this fight? We're not the chief beneficiary here. But are we? Are we aside really picking from the, the fight? weird relationship that the president has with 
with, I'll ask you the question. Are we really picking the fight? I would argue, well, that's a good question. Considering inexplicably the president said he was waiting for, I'm paraphrasing here, that he sounded like he said he was waiting for instructions from the Saudis, um, which is unfathomable for a U.S. president to say something like that out loud. I'm sure I, I'm sure Alan's laughing. Alan. He's going to correct this. But <laughs> well, Dan, Dan never believes anything that the president says ever until the president says something that is obviously not what he meant, and then Dan will take it literally. Okay. What, did, what did he mean? Join, well, <laughs> join I mean us, if you can tell me what he, he meant. meant. Then we'll decide what to do. We need to hear from the Saudis and what join, they think happened, and then we'll decide what to do. Well, he said it in a way that invited the interpretation you're giving. I'm just intrigued that whenever he's – on those rare occasions – he's wrong so much, but right. on, on those those rare occasions when when – he might just be misquoted, and you never believe well, him I mean, on anything. I mean, the fact oh, of the matter, the matter is, the, the, the how this president has handled communications on everything from either national security, global economics, or how he treats our allies, it does make it challenging to give him the benefit of the doubt right. along the way. Well, hold on for a second, because I want to get Admiral Ken out, joining us from South Florida. He is the retired one star admiral from your United States Navy, Admiral Ken Carradine. How you doing, boss? Well, you know, it's great. The, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. Dan and Alan are still at it, and you guys are still talking about Trump. Yeah, Holy that's cow. about how it goes. <laughs> hey, Admiral Ken, from a national security standpoint, yep. you know, we're, we're, we're looking at the escalation here on the Saudi Peninsula. It, it's the first real escalation that we've seen since arguably Desert Shield, Desert Storm of this magnitude. You mean escalation for the United States. The Saudis yeah. are fighting a hot war in Yemen. No, 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 no. I'm talking about for the United States. But from a national security perspective, Admiral Ken, is, is this enough to force the Pentagon to advise the president to make a move? Uh, you know, something like that. You know, it, it took Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait for us to move Seventh Fleet into the the uh, into the Arabian Gulf is this to that escalation or are cooler heads going to prevail? You think? I, I think a lot's changed since uh, since 1990. <clears throat> and by the way, I was there. Um, that makes two of us. Since, a lot's changed since then. Once we're a lot less dependent on Middle East oil. Uh, two, um, the the um, the the president for all of his inconsistencies, has shown uh, one real consistent uh, uh, act, and that's the fact that he uh, he might talk tough, but at the end of the day, he, he kind of backs down. I don't see this as being a real national security issue for the United States for the aforementioned reason that we're no longer as dependent on Saudi oil. Even though, even though uh, Saudi, I, hold on, hold on for a second. Even though Saudi Aramco is in fact, you know, has vested interests. By American petroleum companies, I don't. I, 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 it is hard for me to believe that 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 the president is going to see it that way. Uh, I think also uh, factoring into this is the fact that uh, you know we we for for lack of a better way of saying it through the the Trump foreign policy has we've distanced ourselves from our allies. You know we've made a point of saying he's made a point of saying you know we we get screwed every time we turn around by these people. Well, I can't see him. Uh, you know, committing U.S. troops and assets uh, in defense of uh, trying to save the European economy uh, from a from a shock that might be caused by an, a, a war, a hot, another hot war in the Middle East. 
I, I don't see it that way. Admiral Ken pointed out the 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 in his last comment the exact point though the the already having the spike in oil prices and with economies across the planet in an iffy state and lots of people worried about the U.S. economy. There's no telling what the domino is that starts things falling. And if it turns into an actual hot war, not a proxy war, but a hot war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, that's a mess. Yeah. I mean, Rich Rubino, yep. this, this is going to be uh, probably the biggest test of at least patience, or it could be the quickest fuse that we light in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula since, as Admiral Ken pointed out, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, it, it, with the changes that have happened since the early 90s, are we still obligated with our relationship with Saudi Arabia to pull the trigger on some sort of retaliation? Well, I guess it's, you know, in a sense, it's a devil's bargain, you know, with an, um, with an Islamic regime that we really don't have much in common with ideologically, but it's a, um, you know, it's Donald Trump for everything. Donald Trump, it's all transactional, I guess, but no, I don't think there's much appetite in the United, in the United States, certainly a war-weary nation after Afghanistan, after Iraq. The idea that we're now going to either, whether it's going to be a cold war or, I mean, rather it's going to be a hot war or some sort of a proxy war, that the idea that going into an election year specifically that the United States is going to be tied up defending the Saudi kingdom, I just don't see the political appetite. And one thing Donald Trump understands, certainly, um, certainly under, more, than anything, more than anything else, one thing he does understand is the politics of this. And I really do not see, you know, the American people rallying like they did in Afghanistan after 9/11, for example, saying, "Let's go in there full force and let's def let's defend, you know, let's defend this Islamic this Islamist regime." I just don't see the appetite there. Alan Moore. Yeah, I I think that that uh, first of all, it's great to have Ken's voice back on the program. Um, welcome back, buddy. Yeah. Um, glad to glad to have you there. Right. Um, in in terms of of how of how the U.S. responds, though, and what our interests are. Although we don't have the kind of oil dependency in in Saudi oil that we once did, um, he, the the biggest couple of little facts here. The the biggest importer of uh, Saudi oil is Japan. Second biggest China. Third biggest South Korea. Fourth biggest the U.S. Twenty billion a year. Twenty billion dollars worth a year. And and right behind us is India. Now, if if Saudi oil and then then France and Italy, the European countries right, are farther right, behind, right. But, but very dependent. Um, if if we have a major disruption of Saudi oil, that's going to mean because Saudi's not going to take it lying down. There'll be a big disruption in that whole region and in the shipping channels and so on. We're going to have a global recession like we can't imagine. That. Is even though we even though we have the petroleum independent the energy independence. I'm talking that we about have. a global recession. I'm talking about if Japan and China and Korea and India can't function but, the way they currently do, and we don't have the oil to replace the Saudi oil, we can get along without it. We've got strategic petroleum uh, reserves that we can use really for our own purposes. Um, but with we, the production and, of Canada, Mexico, no, Brazil? there's not enough production capacity out there to <clears throat> make up for Saudi, Iraq, Iraqi, Irani, Kuwaiti, um, uh, and other Middle Even Eastern Yemeni. sources, um, it would be a mass. It it could trigger a massive recession. 
5% is what was disrupted, and that's going to increase oil prices. It's estimated in the you know 10 to 25 cent range. That's not nothing, but that's not a big deal, especially because oil prices, gasoline prices in the U.S. have been down uh, about 25 cents a gallon from last year. That's not the issue, and that it takes a while for this to, 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 to play out. We're talking about disrupting all <clears throat> much more than that 15 right. 20 or more percent um which would be a massive uh hit on the economies right. of those those Saudi oil dependent countries got it all right we're going to take a quick break we're going to continue this discussion it's going to tie into our next segment of national security when we come back this is backroom politics stay with us Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we are back for this episode of the best political talk show you've never heard of. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. In studio, we've got Alan Moore, Dan Lipner on the line. We've got Admiral Ken back from a long hiatus. And, of course, Rich Rubino behind the glass. Eric, the producer, Rob, the engineer, and we are going to continue our discussion on the uh, national security issues facing the country, in particular the situation out in the Saudi Peninsula after a suspected Yemeni rebel attack, but now intelligence looks like it could be Iranian state-sponsored, if not a full-on attack by the Iranian government on a Saudi Aramco facility in northern Saudi Arabia. before we left, uh, I promised you would have first dibs, Dan Lipner. So 
we were going to continue that discussion. Yeah, so the, the point that I um, just want to make sure that we have clarity on, that petroleum isn't just used for for transportation. So the, the, the gas prices and gas lines, well, that's, that, that's a thing um, and not an inconsequential thing. So that oil is also used, well, not so much in this country. In other parts of the world, uh, oil is burned for electricity. Uh, um, in addition to that, there's all of the other products that take petroleum. There is a downstream. Plastic. Plastic's not the least of it. As we sit here speaking into our plastic foam-covered microphones with our pla- plastic-covered headphones, the desk, I'm sure, has plenty of plastic in it. Um, my motorcycle has This is right all next to natural us. fiber, my friend, let me just tell you. <laughs> I, do, I do not believe that our friends at Podcast Village would have petroleum-based tables. But continue. I, 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 I'm sure it's all green. Yeah. Um, so all those costs are something are things that get pushed on and down the chain. And not all of those costs are things that are are fungible goods or goods that people don't necessarily need. So there is a there is an impact that we all begin to feel. And the three-dimensional chess version of this is the the European economies far more locked into their need for petroleum, as Alan pointed out, as well as the Chinese, who's who are going to be uh, exerting their own influence. This is all challenging efforts, and the question is: Who are the thoughtful voices in this White House or in this administration who can pump the brakes or at least actually see the field for? what the the possible solutions are the president has put himself in a corner having pulling out of an agreement that the by all accounts the iranians were following and now what's he going to do the iranians would like back into the, the, the we're talking about the nuclear deal um oh you're talking about the the echo that i can hear as there's well there's a little feedback yeah yeah, yeah, was, yeah. <laughs> hold on there's there's feedback but we'll have rob the engineer take care of that so anyway so continue the, on. the question is who is that voice that allows the the calming of decision making that's not just the president flying off the lip this is this is actually serious stuff. It's not just dangerous to people's lives, but the global economy. It, it is a big deal, and the question is, who's going to blink? Who's going to be the adult? And it's not clear that adult is at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. Are we are we underselling the the president right now, though, Admiral Ken? I mean, it, it's still early on. We know the rhetoric's there, but are we really? Uh, not letting the president get in front of this the way he should? Well, I think part of the problem with that um, question is that we've got two and a half, almost three years of history that we're looking at. And, you know, I think the the only thing that you can really say about President Trump is that uh, you never know what he's going to do from one minute to the next. And I think that if that doesn't make you nervous to some extent, then you haven't been paying attention. Um, so whether you, whether we're giving him the benefit of the doubt or not, I, I you know I, I think Dan m- might have alluded to this earlier. I'm not entirely sure he he deserves one yet at this point. So um, I, I don't know. I, I just, right. uh, I'm, this this makes me nervous uh, only because it is an election year. Uh, polls in the big states. Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania are not swinging his way. 
Um, you know, there, is this going to be another situation of wag the dog Trump style? I don't know, but um, I, it makes me a little nervous. Rich Rubina, do you agree? Uh, yeah, it, it can actually, I, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think this can go two ways. In the, in the one respect, I mean, I think it's in, Do- in Donald Trump's political interest for there not to be a war. So, like, you know, as I say, as I said earlier, he ran in 2016 as a very kind of non-interventionist, anti-war candidate, talking about how Afghanistan and Iraq were a disaster. The last thing he now needs is an election cycle there to be a war on the other side of that. I don't see this happening, but I'm talk- trying to do a cost-benefit analysis and trying to get into his psyche if I can. In his mind, though, he may think that there's going to be this rally around the flag effect, which would certainly benefit him for re-election if, for example, if everyone comes together and says, you know, our real, our real adversary is not at home, our real adversary is over in Iran, and we need to go to, we need to, we need to, we need to either support a proxy war or potentially even a hot war over there. But I don't see this from, I don't see this as a political calculus that is to his benefit because I see that this is a very war war republic. And I do not see – it's not like after September 11th, you know, the war in Afghanistan had 90 percent support. I don't see how this – I don't see how going into this war at this time when people have their own economic anxieties at home would get 40 percent support. So my guess is that it would not be beneficial to him. So I think just, you know, from a cold political calculus, he would say, let's do something so that this does not happen. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think that the chances of the U.S. overtly doing something uh, assertive, aggressive, open um, is is highly, highly unlikely. The real question is what we encourage the Saudis to do. The Saudis um, uh, rely rely on our uh, military equipment. They spend billions of dollars for it. They rely on our intelligence gathering. They use some of it. They 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 get some of it. Um, I mean, some of some of the, uh, the the satellite and other and other assets. Um, so, what do the Saudis do? They're the ones that were hit. They're the ones who were attacked. They're the ones who have their suspicions on who did it. We have our own information on who did it. We we have to make decisions about how much we're going to share and discuss with them what, if you will, their options are. Um, I don't see us. Um, uh, be, you know, engaging in 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 blowing stuff up. Let's assume it's Iran, and we can guess who. The question is, what do the Saudis do, and what do, and but what is the, what's the Iranian about this. what's the Iranian response? Yeah, I mean, do the Saudis just let it happen and say, "Gee, please don't do that again," and and they and and go figure out how it was that twenty different. <laughs> pieces of ordinance could get through the defenses that they supposedly have have that are that are mostly a US technology yeah, but Alan, that let's, they spend let's be smart about this billions of dollars let's on let's be smart about this for a second knowing the fact that the the Saudi royal family and the Saudi government has never been one to really uh, assert themselves militarily particularly in the region particularly tell when it comes tell, to Yemen. tell that to the people in Yemen it, uh, Yemen is not Iran. Uh, you know, they are like the li- they are like but the they're little- in the region. I'm really responding to what you said. <laughs> okay, let me do you want to take you literally or not, not take you literally? <laughs> we can go figuratively. No, but what, I, what I'm saying is, 
when it comes to dealing with the major powers, handling Yemen is one thing. Going after Iran is another thing. And traditionally, Saudi Arabia has not really done anything. They will poke somebody in the chest, and then they'll quickly jump back behind our back going, yeah, 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 if you want me, go ahead, but you got to go through the U.S. first. I, as I said, I don't see the U.S. becoming the active, visible player here. The question is, and Pompeo's probably in Saudi Arabia now. He was on his way and and gathering intelligence, trying to figure out a, what happened, and then B, what kind of options exist for, if you will, the Saudis to take. I don't see us, notwithstanding the fact— Against Iran, that, that, is there any option that doesn't include the U.S., even if Saudi leads it? I don't see us having, having uh, our military directly involved at this point. I could be wrong, but listen to what Trump says. He made a very clear point— Day before yesterday, saying we don't have a mutual defense pact with Saudi Arabia, he could have said they're not a member of NATO. We don't have the agreements yeah, with but, them that but, we have. But, Admiral, Admiral Ken. Yeah, but this is the same president that you know said you know he would meet that the, the, the fake media was saying that he was willing to meet with Iran uh, without any conditions, and you know there's like tons of video of him actually saying I'll meet him without any conditions. So, oh, I agree. Again, it, it plays. It plays to the comment that I made before. The biggest problem that we have with President Trump is his consistent inconsistency. Well, and, and no disagreement there at all. I'm just he, he is so fearful, I think, of being the driving force with his loose lips or quick decisions of getting us into another hot war. He's desperately afraid of that. Right. That's the one thing yep. Yep. that that he that 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 I don't think he'll cross that Rubicon, even if he probably, even if he had to, right? He's, because he has been so critical of every other uh, conflict we're involved with, in his desire to get us out of all right. of them. Yeah, I mean, Rich, even even his bombing of Syria was a hemming and a hawing, and then announcing our intent that, twenty minutes. That was more chest thumping than anything. Right, but it was still uh, so this is to Alan's point about right. the the saber rattling which is also by the way a danger in and of itself. The purpose of saber rattling is to try to prevent so it, the one of, and Admiral Ken this is for you one of my favorite quotes from some of my navy friends is nothing says like care like a carrier off the coast that 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 kind of saber rattling <laughs> if people think you actually will pull the trigger it can force people to the negotiating table. However, this president with his chest thumping that is followed up by nothing um the question is whether or not that saber rattling needs to be taken seriously. This is a real question. But Rich Rubino, we're doing this at a time when, you know, one of the subjects we were going to bring up in the second half of this episode is the fact that we don't have a national security advisor right now. After the late last week departure, firing, resignation, however you want to call it, of John Bolton, uh, we now have pretty much out of the seven major national security heads uh, six are acting. The, the, yeah, I mean, I, we're in, yeah. we're in a really precarious position when it comes to who's giving qualified national security advice to the president. Ivanka. Yeah, but, yeah, but you also wonder how much he takes nice. in the first place. I think for him, it's he's kind of an autonomous being in that you know he the reason he changes so many people, so many people around, and certainly John Bolton. You know, he was anathema to anything Donald Trump had ever stood for. His ideology, his ideology was more neoconservative. Donald Trump was more paleoconservative. I think that. 
Um, anybody that he gets around him, in the, you know, in the scheme of things, it's Donald Trump making the decision. I don't think that it really matters who the defense secretary is, who the acting defense secretary is, who the national security advisor is. You know, he said when he ran, he said that he was asked, you know, where, who he would rely on. He said, he said, you know, I have a really big brain. So I think that that is essentially what he is relying on is what is in his brain, and but, a lot of it for him is it's instinct. <clears throat> it's not necessarily analytical going, you know, okay, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? It's just whatever's in his gut, which I think is certainly right. different than most United but, States presidents. But, Rich, I want to go to you I historically. I more. R- Rich, more. I want to go yeah. to you historically because one, one of the suggestions that the president and some of the White House have hinted to is having Mike Pompeo kind of fill a Henry Kissinger role yeah. as both Secretary of State and a de facto National Security Advisor. Uh, historically, we've only seen that once, and that was with Dr. Henry Kissinger. Is 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 this an advisable tact? And it, does it does it matter the fact that you know Richard Nixon is not Donald Trump, Dr. vice versa? Doctor Do, Do, Kissinger might, it suggests the, you should not do such a thing. The president had to, had, to, had to do the accent. The, didn't the you? president has already said he's not going to do that, and today he named his top five candidates to be the new national security and advisor. That is, they're a bunch of kind of B team guys. I don't mean to knock them. They're not, they're, they're not big names. No. They, they but but the, but at least it's it's names. And he's and he also went out of his way to say to to Rich's earlier point that. This is these are great people who want this job. I looked at fifteen people; they're all great, they're all wonderful. And hey, why and who wouldn't want to work for me? It's one of the easiest jobs around because I make all, I the, make decisions. all the decisions. Yeah, but but yeah. you know, can, I mean, one of, have we ever seen this? this is not a Senate approved position. Have no. you ever seen a White House float names like that? Uh, yes. I have for for I have position. never no have for, not. for what for, for na- national security. five names I'm looking at for national security no no no, no. I mean they floated names but, before no no but for, not like no, this no, 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 no you may as well just put security. put an ad on Craigslist national security right. no. advisor and, and, and by the way one of one of them what one of them is hold on hold on Admiral Ken one of those names Tom Bostard was was pretty much pushed out or fired by the president when he was the Homeland Security Advisor that's what I don't understand. He's talking about. I don't about, think he remembers that. Huh? He obviously. I don't think he remembers. I don't think he remembers that. He obviously doesn't remember the fact that he kind of fired McMaster's and General McMaster's is kind he of. He misses on a, McMaster's. He does miss McMaster's. Yeah. This is a just bizarre. A quick, yeah, go ahead, Rich Rubino. Yeah, just a quick thing on back to Henry Kissinger. And no, I won't do the accent, but you know, remember Henry Kissinger in the first <laughs> in Nixon's first in Nixon's first term. He was not Secretary of State. He was only National Security Advisor. It was it was once Watergate really became escalated during his sec during his second term that Nixon appointed him also National Security Advisor. But they actually had a Secretary of State in the first administration um, who had William Rogers, and he had very little power. He was very ceremonial in many respects. It was in the second administration, and then Gerald Ford kept him on as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State for the beginning of his first term. But then later on, um, later on, he he really he later on. Kissinger simply simply moved back and was only Secretary of State. So you know he kind of it was only really two years in there, even though he'd been there for the entirety of the Nixon administration, the entirety of the Ford administration. Only two years we actually served in the dual post. Alan Moore, is the fact that the president's basically putting green army plastic toys in these positions of national security, saying that hey, I'm going to make the decisions myself. 
Is that sending a bad or an unsecure message to our allies? All right. So, first of all, I, I, <laughs> it's a cute term, but it's highly disrespectful to a bunch of guys who, who, who are responsible, accomplished in many ways. I called it sort of B-team types and felt and, and apologized for that. I'm not going to talk, talk. I'm not going to call them little little plastic figures. Um, he's got. No, no, it's he, not an insult to them, but this is the way that the president. No, this is the way that the president meant it. Regardless, clear. Regardless, insult. it's not an insult to them. I, I'm not going to have you do that <laughs> anyway. Okay. You Alan, did. if you don't want to answer more, the question, more, Alan, if you don't want to answer the question, don't. The, 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 the way the president is treating these men That's and assuming men traded. are being treated. That is exactly how they're being treated. They are plastic soldiers. Yeah, I heard the way Alan heard it. He's got a yeah. Thank you. He's got hundreds of people on the National Security Council he was a, he can he can do without a, a national security advisor or a highly uh, uh, unusual one like John Bolton, who basically stopped having uh, what we used to be called the what are what are called the deputies meetings, where you bring in e- either you convene the entire National Security Council, that's cabinet members, or their deputies. He had this feeling and and was able to get away with it that he could kind of do it on his own. He continually was crossing uh, 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 points of view with the president. The president was isolating him, and it was a matter of time. It was a bad choice in the beginning, and it was a matter of time we don't know you know he used flynn some for 20 minutes while flynn uh was there then he used mcmaster and but 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 they had this sort of personality conflict the president although he talks a good game about how he's smarter than everybody else he knows more about syria than all the generals um he's a stable genius etc he actually does listen to these folks and different points of view that isn't to say they move him off his his preconceived notion. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, what what's what's strange here is for him to say, "I looked at fifteen people. Here's the five. I'm going to pick one of them. They're all fabulous, great." And as you point out, he's actually <laughs> removed some of them along the way, but he's trying to, for some reason, make up to them, throw them a bone. It, he famously. Fires people and then continues. What's to the message? Call them what's up. the message just sends to the allies? Well, it it I don't know that this particular thing sends anything new. This is a chaos presidency, and this is further evidence of that. It's not like it's new evidence. Um, Pompeo is clearly the man in terms of foreign policy, and then Jared Kushner in selective issues has a huge role. The world knows that. Um, And they are talking to Pompeo. They're talking to some ambassadors. They're talking to some senior State Department people. It's a a narrow group of folks. Um, And those people at their peril um, uh, have to to be careful about how they talk about the president. They're trying to establish their credibility and say, yes, we know he's unconventional and we know there are issues, um, but America is still strong. America is still here. We're going to be here long after, you know, 10, 20, 50, uh, 500 years from now. Um, don't give up on us. Uh, and in the meantime, don't believe everything you read and, and uh, about the president. I'm sure there's they, they've all found a way to defend the president, even as they acknowledge that He's unconventional and sometimes creates problems for himself. Right. But, but but there's no national security advisor candidate I could think of who would sort of 
make everybody feel good, make everybody feel comfortable. If that person existed, he wouldn't last more than a few months because right. the president would be so distressed that an appointee of his was was receiving compliments and kudos from all around. Right. That it, actually is Nixon-esque, though. Supposedly that was one of Nixon's beefs with Kissinger that he was getting too much of his own press. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and, and he was being portrayed very well on Saturday Night Live back then, too. Yes, yes, he was. <clears throat> yes, he was. So, Admiral Ken, you know... When, better, than, better than on the show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Admiral Ken, when... When we look at John Bolton's departure, I mean, say what you will, whether you agree with him or not, John Bolton had street cred in national security. His advice, whether you agreed with his hawkish nature on Iran or not, was something to be considered, at least. Uh, He's now gone through two serious national security um, leaders, if you will. And do you think he's going to get a shot at a third, as Alan points out? No. No, no, I don't. I mean, I think, you know, I think part of if, if you go back to the, to, to the days of uh, George W. Bush, um, you know, people were, you know, were aligned both uh, on, on both sides of, uh, of uh, Capitol Hill against John Bolton. And if you remember when, when Bush uh, did not prevail as well during the midterms, um, you know, he had to uh, kick uh, kick Bolton to the side when he was the uh, interim UN ambassador. Um, John Bolton is about as user friendly as a Brillo pad, and um, for all of his smarts, for all of his street cred, um, for all of his uh, I, his hawkishness in, in in basically you know wanting to make sure the United States. Um, always uh, was in a position of, of power when it came to a negotiation table. The guy was just a jerk, and people didn't like him. And uh, I think, quite frankly, you know, when you get fired by two, two presidents, if that's not enough to send you home, boy, I sure don't know what is. And, and, and with the second president well, being Trump, really? But, I mean, do you – and I haven't talked to anybody over at the NSC since it happened – but are you hearing that it it was John Bolton literally was that toxic? Yeah. Inside the NSC? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Dan Lipner is giving me eye like you're surprised. Yeah, no. Everything about John Bolton that suggests is he any meeting he comes into, he comes in with a blowtorch. I mean, there are just crazy stories about him, people like pounding on people's hotel rooms, uh, doors, not for anything. I know about I know I know about the sliding documents underneath their doors. It's it's crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, but now he's got a book to sell. Apparently. Apparently, that said, and let me and I'm already on the record, but let me repeat: in a dispute between John Bolton and President Trump. I'm going with Bolton as far as the facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's there's some truth to that. Uh, as far as the rest of the void, because, again, we're in unprecedented waters here, Richard Bino. Do you recall a time when we've seen a vacant director of national security, which is a relatively new position, but, you know, a head of intelligence, DNI is— Oh, director of national yeah, intelligence. Yeah, DNI is uh, relatively new. Uh, but like a head of our intelligence community, a head of our defense infrastructure, which was just recently appointed, uh, the Homeland Security Ad- Secretary is now out uh, as an as or is has been out and is now in an acting role. Have you seen this much instability in national security around Washington that you can remember? 
No. Um, the nat- in terms of national security, I mean, it's, you know, the closest I can think of, it's not necessarily national security, it's just the cabinet in general, was when Jimmy Carter went to Camp David, uh, brought a bunch of governors, a bunch of executives, came down, um, came, came back from Camp David, gave his crisis of confidence speech and fired about five uh, cabinet secretaries. But, of course, then he had replacements. They supplanted them, and the stability continued. But, you know, in Donald Trump's case, I really don't think it matters who the secretary of anything is because he goes with his gut. I mean, when he was in when he was in Russia and he talked about the intelligence and he specifically said that you know that that the intelligence people, including Dan Coats, for example, had said that the Russians were involved in the election. He said, "Well, Vladimir Putin's here is here too," and he says that it's not. And then he says, "I can say this. I don't see any reason why it would be." My guess is that his intelligence people, his his, his cabinet, were all telling him the exact opposite. But he goes with his gut. Oh, we should also point out the first lady didn't like John Bolton. That came out from President Trump the last week. Too. Well, you know, as the president would say, the first lady has a son to consider. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. There is that. Uh, the uh, do do we see the president name a national security advisor in this coming week, Alan Moore? I think so. I mean, he's put five names. Is out there any there. pressure on him to do it? I don't think he's feeling any great <laughs> pressure. You know, it's like. Well, I'm gonna he I'll fire somebody before I have a replacement. Yeah. Which doesn't have to happen, but he does that Correct. regularly. Um and then there are no obvious candidates. Uh every now and then when there's an obvious uh, number two in a place, uh as you mentioned, you were talking about uh, director of national intelligence. He specifically did not give it to the deputy. He he pulled another person up. Um so he feels no 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 institutional History, no responsibility. So no, Charles Kupperman is not going to get it. Kind of no respect for for experience, right? Um, and and uh, you know, you say who are the five people inside a particular entity that that have the most relevant experience? Um, he doesn't. He just says, "But who do I like?" Right. Admiral Ken, yep. Admiral Ken, is there pressure on the president to have to pick somebody with some some street credibility in this, or does pressure he pick one? Well, that, that's that's what I'm asking. No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think Donald Trump, um, um, you know, has has in the three years that that we have talked about him, almost four years that we have talked about him incessantly. <clears throat> Donald Trump has again, uh, and and someone said a few moments ago, um, you know, decided that he knows more than just about anybody. I I clearly remember him referring to his admirals and generals as rubble. Right. Um, so, you know, who, who the hell am I? You know, so I don't think he responds to pressure. I think he will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. End of story. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, are, we on the brink, are we on the brink of military action in the Saudi Peninsula, Alan Moore? I don't think, well, I don't think the U.S. is, is going to be Are we going to see an active, armed conflict? But I think that we're not done with the tit for tat. I think the Saudis will feel a need to resp- once they're absolutely certain that it was Iran and all the evidence mm-hmm. points in that direction right. I think they will do something but they will do they will try to be measured because they they would like that to quote end it right for the for the time being and then go beef up their their air defense ca- capacities Dan Lipner I think we should look to the Germans and the French to take a leadership role and possibly cutting us out of the stabilizing party in the 
in in this issue. So is I don't, that I don't even, is that even a reality to contemplate? As far as global leadership, are you saying the French and the Germans don't carry some juice? No, I'm, sa- I'm saying, does the, do the Saudis allow the French and the Germans to come in in a role that would normally be played with by the U.S.? They both have some juice, and that's assuming the Chinese don't decide to step in. They, they all have interests here that are far more understandable and realistic that and leadership that is conversant in the issues, whereas we sadly do not. You know, actually, Admiral Ken, Dan brings up a really good point, even though we've only got a couple more minutes left. If the Chinese step in, does that put us in an awkward position? Um... No, I don't think so. Really? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, awkward how? I mean, so so one, the president, you know, has has basically talked tough in the past, and he doesn't want to go go to blows. For the Chinese to come in and soothe things over would be okay because one, they're acting in, in their own best self interest because they need the oil a whole lot better more than we do. Um, the Chinese don't want a global recession. You know, they they're looking for uh, some sort of um, 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 I guess offering peace offering to try and bring an, an, an end to this stupid trade war. Uh, I don't think it makes them look bad. And to answer your question, whether there's whether we're going to see military action, uh, you know, uh, tribal tribal honor demands a response. You're going to see a response. Okay, Rich Ravina, you agree? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's going to be a military action on the part of the United States, whether it's a proxy or whether it's the Chinese. I think there's an outside chance of that, but not in the United States' part. Interesting. All right. Uh, with that, I am your host, Justin Russell, on behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Rich Rubino, Admiral Ken Carradine, and we got Rob the Engineer. Thank you, Rob, as always. Eric, our producer, thank you very much. We'll see you for the next episode of Backroom Politics. Hey, by the way, you can download us on your favorite Google or your favorite podcast service, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, whether it's Spotify, TuneIn Radio, any of them, we're on there. Kind of a big deal now. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next time.